0: Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today's guest is Sanjeev Gordan from Newable. Before he moved into fund management, Sanjeev was on the advisory side. We tapped his knowledge about building venture capital portfolios, discussing how much capital you should allocate and how you should proportion your portfolio. It'd be perfect if you or your clients are thinking about how to do this. If you joined the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or feedback, then you can email us at inquiries at hartmanandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Sanjeev. Hi,
1: Brian. Thank you for having me.
0: As usual, we want to start with getting to know a little bit about you. So can you let us know how you got involved in EIS fund management?
1: Yep. um, I've had an interesting journey. I've been quite fortunate in that I um, set up and sold my own business at a very young age. Um, then somehow what managed. What sort of to, business was that? <laughs> nothing to do with technology at the time. Actually, it was um, <laughs> events management and a mobile cocktail bar, okay. which was always good fun to run. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I um, started that uh, when I was fifteen. Ended up selling that in two thousand and eight, two thousand nine through various different channels, ended up getting into wealth management, but I always specialized in early stage investments and tax efficient uh, investments. Um, So I worked for a wealth management firm for nearly five years and then decided to jump onto this side of the fence after completing my MBA. And I wanted to look at, the companies underlying in the funds rather than just analyzing funds themselves, and also being able to have more of an impact on the companies um, and work with the companies at this stage of the market. So that's what made me switch over. Um, And I'd worked with Newable for about three three years before joining them. And um, it just seemed like a good opportunity because of the way they got involved in the companies. So yeah, that's how I, I turned from entrepreneur to wealth manager to then working with entrepreneurs and investing in uh, EIS. <laughs>
0: Sitting on all sides of the fence, really? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, Newble itself is a slightly unusual organization. So, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about what Newble is?
1: Yeah, it, it, it is indeed. So, um, Newble, uh as an entity has been around since, well, for over 38 years It is owned by the 32 boroughs of London, and we have over 300 employees across the UK. The biggest part of our business is um, advice. So this is where we provide um, advisors for startups and SMEs where you're looking at innovation advice, startups, R&D, exporting is a big part as well. And that's working with uh, the Department of International Trade, Innovate UK, and other entities such as that. In addition to that, we also uh, provide SMEs and startups with flexible office space. So we have about 40 uh, different locations across the UK. And yeah, our our tenants range from kind of one, two man bands starting up right through to uh, medium sized enterprises, probably in the region of about 50 to 60 employees. And then finally is the bit where I come in um, but we've got the finance part which is split into a few different sectors uh, stages. There's the private equity bit which comes in for more mature businesses, there's lending and then there is the uh, early stage venture capital where we're looking at seed and post-seed level businesses um, that are looking to kind of start their journey to commercialization. So Newable as a whole has a, a platform of several different types of services, all aimed at, uh, at helping startups and SMEs within the UK market.
0: Yeah. So I, I found the ownership structure very interesting because I have never come across anything like that, really. The closest perhaps I've seen is Scottish Investment Bank, which is kind of, but that's straightforwardly part of the government. Rather, Yeah,
1: no, this is, yeah, exactly. We're, we are, we're just, we're limited by guarantor rather than limited by share. But in terms of a, a business, we run like a normal corporate would. We still have the usual kind of forecasts, targets, and budgets to meet. All that happens is a lot of that profit kind of gets pumped back into the business as well. Okay.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's almost a quasi-charity aspect to it in that sense.
1: To a certain extent, well, not not so much. I think we're probably more aligned into um, a a corporate in that we are still trying to serve a purpose of uh, running a business, but our priorities are probably more aligned with our SMEs and startups in the fact that we aren't just a profit organization.
0: We thought for the podcast today that we would tap into your background from sitting on the other side of the fence from management as well. So what we sort of Thought about talking about was how to how should investors bring unquoted investments into their portfolio? Sort of the best ways of doing that, and perhaps how they figure out what part of their portfolio should be allocated to unquoted investments. Yeah. So, although we focus in this podcast primarily on EIS, there are other things as well. So, perhaps you can describe what sort of investments you see and and what the different characteristics of them are.
1: Yeah. So the first thing that I used to do um, when looking at unquoted investments is we're very fortunate in the UK that we have got certain policies in place that allow for tax structures in unquoted. And that's obviously one of the things is EIS, the Enterprise Investment Scheme. Then there's the Venture Capital trust And then you've also got BPR as well, business property relief again, which you can hold certain businesses there as well. So the key thing for me is first looking at where applicable, what tax structure is wrapped around those investments, because those underlying investments that you go into in the Unquoted are exactly that, the underlying investments within a wrapper. The wrappers are your EIS, there you've got the whole kind of tax implications on the way in internally on the way out same with VCTs so that's the first is what wrapper am I overlaying on this what's the most suitable for it and then I'm starting to look at what stages are these businesses as well so it's great saying yes they're unquoted um, but in unquoted you've got anything from a man with an idea or a woman with an idea right up through to you can still have hundreds of employees within an organisation and the companies are raising hundreds of millions for certain different rounds. So you've got to really understand the different business cycles or business stages um, within Unquoted. Even now if you look at the market there are many variations of what people call seed. It's, it's a term
0: that I think's changed over time. I think in the US we've seen bigger bigger investments at seed stage and i know and across the spectrum so it's, it's, i think sometimes silicon valley what is now seed used to be series a because everything's just moved up the scale
1: exactly and the thing is is uh, so i spent some time uh, in silicon valley when i did my mba and it's all the quantums that they're playing with, right? And I use playing very loosely, do not necessarily mean that. <laughs> it's very serious. but yeah, It nice. is, it is. But in that they are, th- th- the ecosystem has been a lot better established because they've been going for over 25 years now in this type of space. And because of that, they've seen some really good exits. There's more money kind of going around the market in and, and helping the ecosystem there. So, where in the UK market we would be a lot more apprehensive about a, a half a million investment into a company, that to them in Silicon Valley is pocket change, and they would be taking a lot more of those kind of gambles um, on the companies because they're they're talking about total investment pots of billions. We're talking hundreds of millions here. So that changes the level of what do we invest in at seed stage?
0: Yeah, a recent guest described our, in, our industry as something of a cottage industry, whereas I think Silicon Valley is um, the industrial scale to some extent.
1: Absolutely. No, that's a really good way of putting it. And it is absolutely that. The, um, there's so many different investment managers within this part within in the UK market, each one doing things very differently and in its own little kind of bubbles. But yeah, the the seed stage to me, aside from the value, seed stage to me is getting an idea into the kind of MVP level where you've got something, you've got a- a, minimum
0: viable product.
1: Yes, sorry, I'm using jargon there. Um, (laughs) Getting it to that point and working at the ideation stage. And then you've got the point of Unquoted where you go post seed, but they're not quite ready for Series A stage. And that's where they haven't met the metrics to be able to show commercialization, but they've got past the ideation phase. They need a financial runway to be able to build the processes and help commercialize. And is
0: that kind of what you say is the gap between MVP and product market fit?
1: Correct, yes, yes. Although you'd still want some traction on within the market at that point, you still want there to be a customer, some pilots, early stage revenue potentially, depending on what type of sector you're investing in. But yeah, that's, that's probably where it is aligned to. And then you're going into kind of series A and beyond where you've got, um, you, you've started hitting commercial metrics and then you're scaling the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these are the different areas and different stages when you're thinking unquoted. And I've not even started discussing kind of different sectors and different technologies, because these are the other bits that you need to think about in terms of when you're building a portfolio, how concentrated is your portfolio diversification when you're talking about sector? Um, when you can talk about technology, well, yes, that's, that's, that's a big area. Um, technology can be working in different verticals. So, there's a lot of different variables in the unquoted markets when you're looking at building a portfolio. And it's a matter of getting that right so that you have got some diversification across those different stages, different sectors, and different technologies.
0: Yeah. So, you're saying you've got these, if you like, three stages. We we'll, we'll use that as kind of shorthand, although it's 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 multiple it's spectrum. It, yes, it's a spectrum. Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. But we'll we'll, we'll we'll talk about that as you say. Now, presumably, as you go through those, the risk reduces mm-hmm. in theory. Yeah, um, because you further develop the 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 more likely it is to be successful, and presumably the return or prospective return for success comes down as well. Um, Correct, yeah. So how would you think about, if if I'm an investor and I'm saying, okay, I've got these three areas that I could invest in, how should I allocate my money to each area? How should I think about each area?
1: Yeah. Um, So this is kind of, you're looking at um, their overall uh, risk profile and appetite to loss. Obviously, that's going to be taken into consideration. And one of the things I talk about a lot with our investors is, these investments are long-term first of all and illiquid so you've got to think about actually do you need that money in an immediate term no at what point do you need it then forget about that investment
0: yeah yeah i mean to a certain degree that can affect the wrapper as well because at least in vcts there is some liquidity whereas in EIS there is just none
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. There is obviously, depending on the type of wrapper, there is different um, mechanisms in place and to to be able to implement the uh, cash outs and and liquidity of that investment. But for me, it would be a matter of like if you're if you're looking at if you've got a, uh, your your portfolio and you've kind of met all the risk criteria and appetite for loss, um, I would start putting within your allocation for unquoted probably in the region of about 20% or less into the kind of seed stage. Now, the good thing is, is that tax wrapper around that gives you 50% back on your investment anyway. That's because of you're in That's correct. That's if you are SEIS. So then you've got that kind of 20% being put into that stage. There, you've got a higher potential for loss. But you've also got a higher potential for gain, typical kind of risk-reward balance going on at that end. You then start to put in probably in the region of about 40 to 50% in the middle. Um, And this is where, as I mentioned earlier on, you've got ideation risk, you've got market risk, you've got product and technology risk. In this middle stage, ideation risk drops because that's already been dealt with. You're then picking up on the product and market risks. So you can afford to take that in this middle chunk of your portfolio. And then, so you've already now got between 60 and 70% of your portfolio allocated. You then start to look at some of the later stages, Series A and beyond, and you're probably looking at about 30% of your portfolio being that stage. Now, your reward here, again, because your risks are going to be dropping at this end of the market, your rewards are are going to reflect that the people who invested at earlier stages have taken on higher risk they've gone in at a lower valuation by the time you've got to a series a business a lot of the uh, the cream of the crop has kind of come to the top you're then going into those investments but at a higher premium i guess comparison to what you would have gone in if you did at a seed stage but I would still look at thirty percent of the portfolio there.
0: So, so, where do these percentages come from? Because I've I've looked at several ways of doing this, and I'm just wondering why why do you think those percentages are right for each of those sectors?
1: So, um, we used to we've discussed it um, within within renewable investment team and uh, internally, and it's also something I've discussed with other, others in the market when I was an advisor. It's the the barbell approach. Now, what I've just discussed there isn't a full scientific kind of rationale. We haven't broken this down into the numbers and the and to the to kind of the mathematical equations behind it. But we have overlaid a barbell approach unto unlisted. So, if you're looking at an, a, an overall client portfolio, the barbell approach you kind of have your your, your very low end, low risk cash and cash equivalents at one end you've got your income generating in the middle and then kind of your higher risk at one at the other end and it's just balancing out to make sure that you know in this particular part which is unquoted you're going to put a lower end a lower percentage at the higher risk and then balance that out with a a higher percentage in the lower risk of this part of the market so that's how we've looked at it
0: okay yeah, because I was looking the the simplest one I I which I like is kind of a risk parity type approach, and risk parity says basically it's in inverse proportion to the risk of uh, whatever you're we ex- getting exposure to, and that would sure. kind of suggest that the seed gets the lowest allocation. You say the middle one then gets a the middle allocation. And the series A onwards would get that, the largest allocation of all because then you're allocating equal risk to, you know, in a way that you get equal risk to each bucket. So it might be, I don't know, 1, 6, 2, 6, 3, 6 sort of thing. But mine um,
1: varies to that slightly because what I'm saying in this is actually at the, the the higher end of the risk, you're going in at a higher premium. So for that reason, I've reduced the total amount in terms of percentages that you're putting at that level. Um, so my you know, my kind of chunk works in the middle level where there is still a, a healthy enough balance on the risk reward, and the premiums haven't really kicked in onto the the company valuations at that point. So you've still got a good chance of getting a stronger multiple on your investments. So
0: clearly in in your approach, you're taking a sort of there's an element of a value based approach to your aspect. Correct. In terms yeah. Of, yeah. Is that something that you see as structural in the market? Or is that something that you think ebbs and flows over time?
1: So I don't think those two are necessarily um, disconnected. I think there is a part of it, which is that it ebbs and flows with time. So if we look at the most recent changes in terms of valuations, we were looking at investments um, that we were placing between March and April. And with everything going on, we did have an, it did have an impact on the valuations of the company that we were going into. So there are those kind of factors that have an impact. Um, then there's also kind of looking at it from a perspective of what type of technology or what type of innovation is this? And that will then have an impact on that as well. So that's where it comes into the market because if you're looking at anything that, when you're investing, you're investing with, the, with an exit in plan or an exit in view as to how are you gonna get to that stage? And if you know that the industry or the market for that particular sector is only going to be exiting at multiples of three times, four times, or 10 times, that will then be priced into your valuation when you're going in at the point of investment. So that's where, I I mean, it kind of is linked to the market, but then it also does ebb and flow with regards to what's going on in the climate as well.
0: That also kind of suggests that, returning to the point you touched on earlier, sectors or the sector that you're getting exposure to will have an influence on that too. Because if you're investing in, let's say, a a restaurant, you're not going to get a 10 times return or or very unlikely to get a 10 times return on a restaurant. Whereas in a tech company, that might be a reasonable target.
1: Exactly. So that's why you would look at the the sector when looking at those investments. Um, If you look at someone that we are currently um, exploring there's a um, a technology within oil and gas. Our investment team was just literally talking about the potential um, exit multiples within oil and gas industry being capped at a certain level. So for us, the look at the business that we're going into didn't make sense at the valuation that they were initially asking because we don't think we can get to a good exit multiple with the industry currently as it is. So that's where we do take those kind of things into consideration at point of investment.
0: You sort of described how an investor would allocate his capital within his venture capital allocation. How do you think an investor should approach thinking about how much capital they should commit to venture capital? Yeah,
1: this is something that uh, comes into into play with the... Um, risk uh, questionnaires that people should be looking at and their own risk appetite, um, appetite for loss, etc. Now, the thing that I was constantly kind of working with my clients on is the typical model is a, a risk uh, scale of one to ten. Uh, one being kind of keep everything in cash and 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 make sure it's liquid liquid all times. Ten being pretty much go and invest in every single venture company you can find. So so for me, it was if a client, and most of the clients that I I used to work with would come out in the region of about between five and eight. But if they are between five and eight, it doesn't mean that you look at every one of their investments at a higher risk. It comes back to the point we discussed earlier on. You then balance those percentages within that barbell approach, so that they have got some exposure. And if they are an eight, they probably have a higher percentage exposure. If they are a, let's say a four or five, you may still give them exposure to venture capital, but a very small percentage of their overall portfolio. And that's then um, decided based on their appetite for loss. So not only the risk appetite, but then appetite for loss. Um, is then how you would look at what exposure of their total allocation that they should be taken. So if their risk, and I'll give an example here, if Mr. Jones is looking at um, a risk appetite of five, you'd say fairly balanced um, and typically... So, you so their normal
0: even... portfolio would be, would that have to be the 60-40 equity bonds or split, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, that exactly that. So normally that would be what they, what their advisors would be telling them to go into. There'd be a lot of uh, cash, commodities, fixed income, et cetera. You wouldn't typically look at a, um, a venture capital strategy within that. But actually, if uh, Mr. Jones has a capacity for loss and there is, let's say, in the region of 5% or 10% of, of, of her portfolio of her assets or income she wasn't requiring, then actually you'd start to put that into the higher risk and then balance off maybe some of that with a, with a much lower risk of, of being in kind of fixed income. So that's how I would look at it, is balancing it between the two in that manner.
0: Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a very good point. And it's something that I've come across in my work as well, where if you sort of work with an equity bond split, whatever that, be, whether it's 64 to whatever it is is, is, is called the allocation for you. Yes. Or if you're an advisor for your client, then adding venture capital can improve the return and the risk profile. But mm. only if you offset that by, because if you, if you take out a chunk of equities, investment and in replace with venture capital, you also have to increase the, the low risk exposure to kind of keep the over, if
1: you'd say risk targets to keep that the same. And that's the big thing, that's a, that's a whole different way of looking at a portfolio um, overall if you're taking that approach where okay within my 60% equities actually I'm going to put 10% of that in venture capital then I'm going to have to balance out and take out some of that 60% and put it into fixed income so it's not necessarily a 60-40 anymore but at least that way I've got some exposure into venture capital and high potential high growth there. Um, and that, like you said, balances out the fact that you have taken a bit of a hit and put in some uh, a, a higher percentage potentially into fixed income.
0: So you, you mentioned fu- people range five to eight. I, I think one question that Advisors are probably all very familiar with this, but any individuals listening to this, how did they find out whether they're a five or an eight? or? <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. uh, yeah. so I'm probably uh, coming at this from my kind of when I used to have my advisory hat on. I think there are a few still available online where you can do risk profile questionnaires. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you're an individual kind of investor, don't have an advisor, um, then yeah, there's possibly a couple available online. But most of the time, an advisor would do this with you. And this is looking at different scenarios. If the market performs in this manner, how would you react? So if the market was to drop, how would you react? If the market was to pick up, how would you react? Giving you different scenarios to gauge what kind of profile you have uh, as an investor.
0: And just to give us maybe a range of approach, you mentioned 10% as an allocation there. If someone was a 5 or an 8, what's the sort of range of exposure to venture capital do you think would be appropriate?
1: Again, I'm looking at what is their overall portfolio looking like. Um, obviously, if they are a, an eight where they've got a higher kind of uh higher risk appetite, then you could be pushing up um into like 20-30, in some cases, even 40% of their, their, their portfolio being on venture capital. Um, but yeah, it really comes down to what their overall portfolio looks like and um, yeah, their appetite for loss as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the quantum of the portfolio also makes a difference there. There's a big difference between someone who's maybe got £50,000 of savings Correct, and someone who's yes. got £5 million where if someone with £5 million, if they lost a million, well, actually... They're not worrying about what's going to happen, whereas the person with small savings has, would, would struggle to cope with that better.
1: Correct. And and that's why um, it's the, the, the kind of um, eligibility criteria for these types of investments is set as it is. So as an investor, you have to be either a sophisticated investor or a high net worth investor to be able to kind of get exposure from uh, this or to these types of investments. And that's really protecting investors to make sure that they know what they're getting into and they're not just being put into these types of um, investments which they may not understand or may not actually have the capacity to lose that money on. Um, So, yeah, that's why I think those criteria are really important for investors and making sure that they fit them and actually understand what they're going into as well.
0: Do you think that's an issue for the industry? Because certainly my work suggests a small proportion of venture capital can make a meaningful difference to the risk return profile of a portfolio. And it seems to me that a very retail-friendly product would probably, even even as a handful of percentages, would make a, a difference to most people's portfolios.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. There is there is a, a, a huge potential opportunity with this, but it's a matter of how do you make this more accessible? So it is difficult when you're investing, uh, because of the, the logistics of it within the market, you can't take £100 into a company and then let's say a £1,000 into venture capital and then that gets split into £100 lots, that's very difficult to be able to actually manage from a logistics point of view and the way the system works in this end of the market. Mm -hmm. So there is a huge opportunity if there was a mechanism of some sort which allowed for that. Now there is a lot of talk around crowdfunding type platforms and there's a few different types of things that are coming about into the market that could change it. But linking it back to what you mentioned earlier on, for someone who's got a a portfolio of investments of 50,000, they're going to struggle to get the right type of exposure into unlisted equities when they're only investing 10, 20% of that portfolio. Um, But as you build up your overall investment portfolio, there is more opportunity for you to get into this market.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly as things stand, VCTs probably are more relevant for that smaller investor than... EIS uh, because they bring that better here.
1: Yeah, but you've still got some. You, you've still got minimum investment amounts within the VCT funds as well. So yeah, there is still some sort of some smaller restrictions on those um, VCTs than there are in EIS, but they are still the restrictions there as well.
0: So you touched on scenario planning, and this is one area that I I, I think's a challenge for a lot of investors is that. It's nice and easy academically to sit and create an asset allocation and say, okay, you're 5% or you're 10% or 15% of venture capital. That kind of sort of s- takes a snapshot now, but markets do move up and down. And the issue or an issue for unquote investments is rebalancing is not easy. So if the market bombs, you suddenly could find your um asset allocation goes from say five percent to ten percent and well that might be a bit more dramatic how do you think investors should deal with that
1: one of the first things i'm going to kind of come back to on that or come to on that in linking it to something we discussed is over the risk profile you have to overlay time uh, as an investment so how long can i uh, kind of afford to be in the market when do i need this money in cash and that takes over a lot of your investment decisions. Because if you've got a risk profile of eight and you're actually happy with uh, making high risk investments, but actually you need the money in 12 months, well, that's not quite going to work in terms of venture capital. So the time of uh, time horizon when investments come into play massively that overlays risk profile. When it comes to rebalancing when things markets change, as we discussed, it's very difficult with early stage investments to rebalance portfolios as such. So what you want to be looking at and thinking about is the types of investments that you're looking at in an early stage portfolio. This is kind of seed series A and or between seed and series A actually, is you're wanting to go into investments that are looking four, five, six years ahead and not necessarily correlated directly to the markets. Mm-hmm. So you start, you want to be investing in technologies that are coming into play and will have commercial kind of uh, viability over three, four years, five years plus because that won't then have that impact on, on if the market's bomb, everything drops because they're slightly disconnected and they're looking a little bit further out. So you can afford to have those staying as it is without having to rebalance that part of a portfolio and then in those scenarios you may be taking into consideration things like um, if in that next year you can't afford to make any more investments in equities you have to then drop away some of that or where you can flex which is the listed equities you then start pulling those levers and 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 changing those levers with more into kind of fixed income or commodities because it's controlling the controllables you really haven't got as much control over the unlisted as you probably do with other aspects of your portfolio.
0: Yeah, and, and for most investors, that probably suggests if you've got an idea of the percentage, you should probably be a little bit more conservative, not necessarily hugely, but it, if a theoretical model pops out, I don't know, 12%, then maybe 10% might be a more comfortable percentage in, You know, in the short run. To give you that little bit of buffer so you don't suddenly find yourself you're actually 15 or 18 which is would be uncomfortable for you
1: yeah that's that's a key point there you mentioned you've got to make sure you're comfortable with that the last thing you ever want with any type of portfolio is it keeping you up at night and i know it sounds so cliche but it was a conversation i used to have a lot as an advisor and i think about myself like am I comfortable where where these investments are? Uh, if the worst case scenario happens, am I still going to be able to sleep at night? Or am I still going to be able to carry on? And that's where you kind of really have to think about it at the start of your investment journey. So yeah, that, that is definitely important. Yeah,
0: I, I, I think there's something to be said for almost a veil of ignorance a little bit in a sense, and that say something like a VCT, where the fund structure doesn't give you necessarily... Immediate visibility underlying investments in the way an EIS fund does might actually be, even though there, in some sense they're investing in the same area, that v- slight veil of ignorance might actually make an investor yes. feel more comfortable.
1: <laughs> yes, true. Potentially there is that. And then there's also sorry, a point that you just made earlier on. You've got to really look at it in terms of there's a theory of this, the theory of investing and taking risk and the practicalities of them. And those two things might be very different in terms of how it actually works in real life. So the theory might be that, yes, like you just said, your profile comes out at a 12% potential allocation. In actual fact, based on the way things work, you might actually be putting in five, or you may put in 15, but it it doesn't always work in line with the theory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Especially not in the unquoted markets where there is so many different variables to take into account.
0: So we talked about scenarios. In some ways, we are in the middle of one big scenario that was kind of hard to plan for. How do you think COVID has affected the way people are looking at these things?
1: So I think the initial conversations that I was having, there's two different camps. There was um, those that they saw risk increase on the listed equities and in the markets And they thought, well, I'm not gonna add any more risk to this, I can't be looking at EIS VCTs at the moment, it's just too high risk. And they they looked at that in, in that way of, there's just taking all risk where possible off the table. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is looking at the risk reward payoff. And if the risk is increasing in the markets, but the reward's not necessarily increasing, I know what I'm getting into. I understand EIS and VCTs. I understand the underlying businesses. Actually, I'm willing to put in a bit more money there now and allocate a little bit more money there because I can balance it off with the fact that even in the listed in 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 the in the markets, the risk for me has gone up two or threefold, if not more.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting. I saw some stats the other day suggesting that since the sort of spring. The startup rate for new businesses has accelerated, which mm-hmm. is kind of understandable given employment situations and whatever. But I think from a investment perspective, there that creates a larger pool of potential investments. And for the investor who's perhaps got the capital to spare, there might be better opportunities. And perhaps anecdotally, but there's a lot of really good businesses over the last decade that were started kind of 2008 2009 they took this seven eight ten years to develop and Mm. i wonder to what extent we'll see that now i mean yeah a lot of these start business starting obviously will fail because most new businesses fail but there will be opportunities
1: Mm. no absolutely and the thing is there's there's two points I'd, i'd want to make on that it's firstly we have seen in this market, there's a lot more noise. And what I mean is there are a lot more, like you said, a lot more companies approaching us for capital, for investment. And it doesn't necessarily mean the quality of the companies has increased, the quantity has. So we're probably screening more companies, but not necessarily investing anymore. We're, We're really working with the companies a lot longer before we place those investments, because we want to make sure that they are the right companies. And there's a bigger pool now to look from. And my worry in the market is if investors are not going to be doing the right level of due diligence in these companies, there's going to be a lot of bad decisions made because all of a sudden, like you said, there's a lot of businesses popping around, which sound like great ideas at the time. And a lot of money will be going into these companies without the right due diligence, without the right kind of processes in place to make those decisions that will have a negative impact on our industry in terms of the early stage market so I'm hoping that's not that's not where we end up at because organizations like Newable and many other fund managers have the right processes systems in place to be able to do the due diligence cut through the noise within the market and make sure that the opportunity that they are investing in is the right type of business.
0: Yeah I mean certainly there's a contrast to be made between the professional and I'll use crowdfunding in a broad sense, not necessarily yes, yes. pointing my finger at the platforms, uh, but saying you know the, the retail direct investment, I think could be vulnerable there's, in that respect.
1: Yeah, and there's a huge, huge part of the market that where investments are made and pre-virtual made in pubs and at friends' houses and stuff like that. So I think if anything, that's that might potentially increase potentially but that part of the market is very much unreported. how do you actually get to know how many of these deals have been done where a couple hundred pounds has been put into a friend's business where they are now doing an online e-commerce shop or whatever it may be
0: um, I mean some of them use the crowdfunding platform so you get these situations where companies go into crowdfunding platform and they don't actually raise money on the platform specifically but they use it as a way of managing the investment and the shareholder base effectively for their friends and family.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of those types of um, platforms available. Um, And that's brilliant for the market because it's bringing um, that that necessarily that wouldn't necessarily be recorded. It's bringing it to light and it's also helping with the process. It's professionalizing what you called earlier on the, the cottage industry part of it. It's trying to professionalize that as a whole so there are things that are available that will hopefully help but i think it's a matter of still even whilst there is going to be a potential increase in number of businesses making sure that the decisions are still going through a rigorous process or the the decision making process is is still very robust to make that end investment Mm
0: -hmm. there's there's probably some really good businesses out there but
1: yeah absolutely there will be absolutely there will um, be playing don't. The the whole that whole cliche of some of the business the best businesses are being started in the most troublesome times goes back to kind of there's there's the stories from World War One to, uh, to the 1994 ninety four two thousand bubble and two thousand eight all of these different stages have had some really good businesses come out of them and I hope this is going to be the same thing and from what I'm seeing there are some good potential winners already coming through. And what you've got to look at is how are those businesses really impacting efficiency? How can they make people and make organizations a lot more efficient? So whether we're looking at things like augmented reality, virtual reality, to be able to increase how people can work better virtually, how people can shop better virtually, Um, or if you're looking at things that can increase the amount of training that can be done for doctors and nurses through these types of devices, they're definitely going to see some potential kind of um, winners out of those types of sectors because they're helping industries grow and gather to go get to the next level. So because of that, and the way that this crisis is probably like one that we haven't seen in the last hundred years, we're going to see businesses that do shake up different sectors and markets.
0: So on that positive note, we shall move on to our standard questions. So uh, I'll throw these at you and we can see what you think about them. Can you tell us about the most recent investment you made and why you made it?
1: Yep. So there was a company that we invested in, which was taking Amnion from uh, C-sections that were being conducted and they were turning the the, the amniotic sac that a baby is is in um, at point of pregnant throughout the pregnancy and then if it's taken out uh, if the the birth is through a c-section that stays intact that is then taken and used through several different processes. It goes into a tissue-like material which can then be put onto the eye to help with extreme dry eye disease, um, cornea damage um, and other um, issues within the front of the eye. Um, And that basically is using material that would normally go into waste for better medical uses, because that has regenerative tissues and purposes to be able to help speed up um, the regeneration of the front of the eye. So That was one that we did not too long ago. Um, and it was a one in, within the medical sector, which I think uh, could have quite a big impact on that particular part uh, in, in the sector.
0: Sounds, um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how to say <laughs> what that sounds like. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to take that. I'll move on quickly. Um, <laughs> in the classic triumvirate of venture capital preferences, which do you think is the most important between market, product and market?
1: Uh, Sorry, market,
0: product, and management.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to go with – now, all three of them are (laughs) very important, uh, as we've discussed throughout. The management team underpins all of that, though. You've got to have the right type of individuals who are um, driving that business forward. Um, So I think that's really important because you can have a great product and a great market, but if you've not got the right type of – leadership and management style that business could could fall at a first hurdle or the opposite way around where you could have a really tricky market and the product is it needs a lot more work with the right resilient team they they could take that through so i think the management uh, of of the business the the leadership and the team is of extreme importance
0: tell us about a time you failed and what did you learn from it
1: <laughs> so this goes back to when I uh, had my own business and it was a lesson I learned on pricing very quickly, where I thought i had priced my services very well, started celebrating, didn't take into account all my costs, ended up, <laughs> ended up with probably about just enough money to get myself an ice cream or something ridiculous. <laughs> and it was a lesson that I said I would never forget um it's the so, importance of well
0: it's better than losing money
1: yes yeah exactly I still, I still managed to get something out of it at the end but yeah the kind of making sure you're taking the bigger picture into consideration uh all the different variables into consideration and pricing everything correctly so yeah that's one of the, the ones that are stuck the life lessons that stuck with me
0: <laughs> I've made the same mistake myself so you have my sympathy the industry we work in the EIS industry is far from perfect what would you like to change about it
1: there is a huge need, and we are doing this as a sector with things like this podcast helping massively, but there is a huge need for advisory network, which helps connect us to investors to educate the, the them and get a better understanding of how the market works. That needs to change, but also from a policy perspective, making it a lot easier to uh, be able to get in and out of EIS investments, because that would help the point that we made earlier on. Whereas if you're playing, if you're looking at a kind of a smaller quantum, then naturally you may be priced out of the EIS market because you've not got enough to to actually go into the market from a logistics perspective. Well, actually, if the market, if the the policy changed and potentially worked as a true fund, similar to a VCT, or worked in such a mechanism where there was an ability to, to allocate smaller sums of money, that would really help our industry as a whole.
0: I'm an avid reader, and lockdown has been wonderful for my clearing out my reading pile. Is there anything out there you really like and would like to recommend?
1: 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. I don't know, is that a book you've come across? It's,
0: I haven't come across far. But what's it it's about? The
1: third, it's the third in the the trilogy, Homo Sapiens, Homo Deus, and then this book. Ah, one,
0: this one. so this is and, Hariri.
1: Yes, correct, that's right. And it's looking at, so the book goes through several different types of scenarios in what the world would look like in 20, 30, 50 years. And it looks at it from a political, socioeconomic perspective. Um, technology perspective, and how those different scenarios will play out if there is a um, uh, something done from a uh, political perspective, if there is kind of the right management of these types of technologies, or if there isn't. And it can be very eye-opening as to what the world could look like when the types of technologies that are now coming about are things like gene editing, um being able to kind of the 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 transport aspect of things and infrastructure things so there's so much that's coming about which will have a huge impact on our lives in the next 20 years or, or less but more so by then if it's not managed well it's a very scary picture but I think the way we are heading in terms of the the moral compass starting to kind of gain more traction again more people becoming aware of that I think it could be managed well, in which case its technology will be harnessed better for society. So that is definitely one that I have been recommending and talking to a lot of people about. And the other one that I'm going to jump on, I know you asked for one, but I'm going to go with two here. <laughs> I have plenty of the other, one, yeah, <laughs> the other one is the chimp paradox. Um, have you come across that one?
0: Is that the sort of chimp mind, the duality of the brain?
1: yes 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 the mind being split into three where you've got the the cpu the the computer and then the actual chimp which is the most the least evolu- evolutionized part of our brain and how that reacts with other parts of the brain so yeah both of those two um have, have been recommended to many people recently because i found them really good to to get through excellent
0: okay what do you wish you know new when you started newball that you know now or started with Newable, you didn't start Newble, but
1: Yeah. <laughs> what did I wish I knew when I started? Um, that's a tricky question. I think it's, I'd come down to, although I looked at and reviewed a lot of EIS funds, I wasn't aware of the kind of detail of the industry being on this side of the fence. So I wish I knew that before, because it probably would have given me a lot more insight into the industry uh, before joining the EIS market. <laughs> okay.
0: Great. So if people want to find out more about what Newable's doing, where should they go?
1: Yep. So um, the Newable website um, has a tab on there called Newble Ventures, and that's all about um, where we, what we're doing, where we're investing. They could look at some of the portfolio companies um, that we have invested in over the last few years, some of the success stories um, that we have seen, and um, inquire about new investments as well
0: okay and is that just newable.co.uk? so
1: yeah that's correct yep that's uh, newable.co.uk as a landing page and then you can explore from there
0: excellent okay well thank you very much for your time today sanjeev we much appreciate it brilliant
1: thank you for having me brian it's been brilliant talking to you um and great work on on doing these podcasts to increase the uh, the knowledge of the s market thank you very much
0: so we hope you enjoyed that If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanandco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanandco.com. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you soon.